0: Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he knew plants, nor he who waters is anything, but only God. Who gives the growth he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are god's fellow workers you are god's field god's building according to the grace of god given to me like a skilled master builder i laid a foundation and someone else is building on it let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The word of the Lord.
1: We started in on a series called Cultivating Community just last week. We were looking at 1 Corinthians, and um, as a reminder of why we're doing that, uh, we did an entire summer of discernment this summer using the book of Exodus, and part of that was an impetus, uh, a catalyst that we became aware of a building that was possibly available in the Vienna area, and we had to ask the question, what is God calling us to in mission and ministry? And there's a number of things we're still in the process of discerning, but one of the things that became very clear to me over the past six to eight weeks, even mid-July on in listening to people in the different discernment gatherings, is that we are called to cultivate community at a deeper and wider level than is natural to us. We are called to develop relationships and friendships that are lasting and honest and vulnerable and humble and filled with grace. And I think to the extent that we can do that, we will accomplish great things in our lives and in the community around us. To cultivate a type of community that, regardless of whether we have a building in six months, in six years, or never, it will transform our lives and be an open invitation to people looking for a place to call home, looking for relationships deeper than with social media. But the problem is this. Relationships are hard. You all are sinful, so am I. And when you put two people together, things tend to blow up. I've unfortunately seen this a number of times in marriages. You, some of you have experienced it yourself, but I've had the, the sad episode of, of uh, discipling, essentially, somebody doing some uh, marriage mentoring, doing the wedding, and then seeing them break apart as their differences became so great and their fights became so great and there was irreconcilable anger and and just hurt through years of brokenness. How can two people who looked so beautiful on their wedding day, right? They looked great and just a couple of years later they could not stand each other. How does that happen? Some of you know it even just on a work level. I've I've watched as well people who were really invested in their work community and then eventually something changes and the people they were partners with just want nothing to do with them anymore. It all was working great at the beginning. Or even for years it was working great. And then all of a sudden, those in leadership back away. The deciding partners say, we're not here for you anymore. That's the world we live in. Desiring relationships but filled with so much brokenness, we're not sure how to do it. So how do we cultivate relational wholeness in our own lives and a deeper, wider, and more diverse community here or in our lives as well? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians and this morning looking at 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul addresses a root of division that was happening in the Corinthian church. And then he points to the obvious solution of the cross of Christ. But it's worth looking at exactly how Paul does it. So, in 1 Corinthians, and I mentioned this last week, the the Corinthian church had had been a church for a while, but they were a relational mess. They had all sorts of issues related uh, to people being rich in the church and others poor, and the way that they had social castes within their church. They had issues with singleness and marriage and the divisions there, even with how sexuality was being played out. They had brokenness in, in their times of potluck suppers. They had people lording it over others because they were more spiritual or exercised certain gifts or talents. Their worshiping community was a total mess. And one of the ways this played out that Paul's addressing in the first couple of chapters is through different groups that uh, adhered to a particular teacher or leader. So what had happened was Paul had come into Corinth, preached the gospel. Many people had come to faith in Christ. Sometime later, another apostle named Apollos had come in and either continued preaching or began being the pastor teacher there. At some point, it seems like Cephas, otherwise known as Peter, also came in there. And what the people were doing is they were breaking themselves up into little groups and the groups were saying, we follow Apollos or no, we are uh, Paul's followers or or, we learn by Peter and Peter's the head apostle. Like he's the one, and it was this idea that you needed to be in a certain group and each group was vying for who had control, who had power, who had the real in. And Paul admonishes them. In verses three and four, after telling them that he couldn't give them real spiritual food, because even though they'd been Christians for a long time, they were not living as Christians very well. He says, For you are, verse 3 and 4, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the you are not of the flesh and behaving you are not of the <laughs> sorry you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human. They were moved by entirely human drives, is what the translation is. Entirely human drives. What was motivating them was what they could get out of anything in life, what their culture said was good, right, or true. True. They had a self-reliant attitude concerned only with themselves, which was no different than the Corinthian culture around them. And Paul is saying, what are you being driven by? By the spirit or by your own selfishness? By by Christ crucified or by the norms of your culture? So the Corinthian people, not just the, the Christians, but in Corinth in general, they overvalued honor having public honor, being held in high honor. It was an honor and shame culture, which we don't live in. And so they sought status and public recognition. And what ended up happening was they couldn't just enjoy the benefits of having been discipled by Apollos or come to faith through Paul. They had to use their connection to one or the other as a way to advance themselves, to prove who was best or on top they had bought into the culture's values and brought them into their relationships with one another here in northern virginia we value things that america values which is success and achievement we hold very high personal freedom and personal happiness and i think the question that paul is asking them would ask us do you buy your cultural's narrative your culture's narrative about what matters most? Are you led by the spirit or by purely human drives? Paul goes on to explain the way that they should be. At the end of chapter three in verse 21 to 23 he says, so let no one boast in men, Paul, Apollos, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The first six times I read this, I was confused. But then reading a couple of other things and helping to kind of pull in what, is actually, what Paul is actually saying, he's saying this, look, in, in the scheme of God, in the economy of God, it does not matter whether Paul is the one who told you about Jesus or Apollos whether you are friends with Cephas or friends with a, it doesn't matter. In fact, he goes on to say, don't even worry about what you have now or in the future. Don't worry about even whether you live or die. Why? Because you are Christ's. And if you are Christ's, you have everything you could possibly need. There is nothing that you need in life that you can do not have in Christ. And there's nothing that can be taken away by losing honor or status, by being connected with somebody lowly or somebody high. Having wealth or not having it, it doesn't matter. If you have Christ, you have everything. So don't boast in men or anything else for that matter. In verses six and seven of the next chapter, he carries on with this same idea I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They're puffed up, favoring one against another. And they're boasting, acting as if the things that they have, the status that they have, their wealth, whatever it is that they have, their talents, are something they've achieved. And this goes back to what we talked about last week, about the way that Paul is using this word boast is not just an arrogant blowhard, it's actually to glory in something. And glory is a Hebraism, a biblical idea, it's an idea of uh, something that is weighty. The actual term for glory and the one behind the word boast is something that weighs a lot, something that is very heavy. It is an immovable mover. It is, another way of talking about it is something that is important or lasting. It has purpose and meaning. Something that is most glorious is weightier than something that is less glorious, Jeff Sherwood was a senior when I was a sophomore, and Jeff was bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, He went on to be uh, in the Special Forces, and even at age 17, 18, he looked like he was ready for the Special Forces. He was vicious, tough, and just a ball of muscle. I was a sophomore. I was five foot four, maybe 120 pounds, and I was playing on the JV football team. And by playing, I mean I was third-string quarterback. I got to run scout team against varsity. Yippee! We were running the option play, which they don't really run anymore. But basically, it was this: I took the snap, I ran down the sideline, or ran down, ran towards the sideline, and to my right was a running back running alongside of me. I had the ball, and when I got to the end of the line, I faked a pitch to the running back. Why? Because the defensive end was gonna hit me, but I faked him out. Woo, fake like that, the defensive end dove after the running back who had nothing, and I turned up field, and that's where Jeff Sherwood met me. <laughs> At that moment, I learned that one of the two of us was more glorious than the other. One was the immovable mover. One was moved off his feet. We all want to be the immovable mover. We all want weightiness, significance. We want to matter. And so we look to our grades or our career or the love of somebody else, the happiness and success of our kids, the approval of our parents or our peers to give us purpose, to fill us up, but Paul says <laughs> it's no different than being puffed up. This is a word that actually Paul almost makes up. It's only used by Paul in the New Testament and uh, mostly in First Corinthians. And it, it can mean quickly, easily translated arrogant or proud. And often it's translated that way. But it, it, it literally means to be inflated or swollen It comes from the root of a bellows that you filled up with air and then blew up the fire or the ovens, right? So it's like a giant balloon. And he's saying, the things you're putting your weight in, Corinth, are like being filled with a bunch of air. You're trying to find a weightiness and a lastingness in a bunch of air. And while you might be big in this world, you're overinflated. You're ready to burst. We all look to something by nature. By nature, we all look to something. Something that we can get, something we do or have done, or something we can become. Something besides God to find our purpose, to give us that sense of weightiness. And we think in our head, if I have that, if I get there, If I make it to that level in my career, if my kids do this, if I go to this school, then I'm somebody. Then I matter. But Paul is saying, if it is not God that is filling your balloon, you're not weighty enough. And whatever it is you're putting your trust in cannot fill the void. Our need for relationships, I mean, our need for glory, for this weightiness, destroys and damages relationships. So, you know, you know what a resume is. It's, it's that sheet of paper that you used to turn in. It doesn't look like that any, anymore of, of the places you went to school and the jobs that you've had. It, it's still a part of applying for a job is, is your resume gets out there, right? And, and essentially, you get a job uh, because somebody interviews you and looks over what you have done and accomplished, Your past production and track record reveals whether they should hire you or not. And so, in a career, similar to if you're trying to apply to college, you're trying to build up that transcript, in a career you're trying to build up that resume so that you can get the next thing, get the next job. Our ego is constantly trying to build a resume. We are constantly working to get, to get ahead, to keep up, to prove ourselves, to prove to ourselves and to others that we matter. And so as a result, we're constantly comparing. How do we measure up? And therefore, constantly competing. Every other person becomes a threat to our standing, to our next step, to what really matters, or or they are somebody that we use. Because if I'm better than you, I look good. If you like me, I get approval. We're constantly comparing, and our ego is trying to build that resume. C.S. Lewis provides the clarity once again. He uses the word pride, talking about our glory need. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich, or clever, or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, or cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich, or clever, or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And so many of us are overinflated, puffed up, and fragile. And we cannot even enjoy other people if they are trying to be puffed up in the same area that we are. You know, I can enjoy, be in awe of, and even praise really talented musicians and athletes. Why? Because I'm not one of them. It's not where I get my meaning or my purpose. But if being a musician is your source of identity, you probably can't even enjoy or praise a talented musician because their talent, their success, diminishes yours. Your worth is deflated when you see their talent. And the same is true in whatever, whatever we put all of our hopes in. And so our relationships break down. Paul, as he usually does, tosses all of it out. He tosses all of it out by his own example. He says, look, you guys want honor and status. You want to be recognized. You want to, you want to be held high by everybody else because that's what matters in Corinth, like success or happiness or liberty matters in our culture. Paul writes, here's, here's what I am like. In verse nine, for I think that God has exhibited a, us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And look at the contrast of what Paul is doing. He is holding up the things that they value in Corinth, that their culture values, and he's flipping the opposite and saying, this is the life we live. We are fools and you value wisdom. We are weak and you value strength and power. You want honor and you've got honor, but we are held in disrepute. In verse, 10, in, in verse 9, he says, he talks about being a spectacle sentenced to death. This is the idea of those thrown into the, into the gladi- uh, gladiator realm. They're tossed in the middle, being destroyed, eaten by lions for everyone's amusement. It was the most shameful thing to be a slave or a Christian in the couple of centuries later, tossed into the middle for everyone's entertainment. And Paul's saying, that's who we are. We're no different than the slaves being killed for amusement. In verse 11 and 12, he basically again throws out the cultural norm and it's saying in a culture where status was actually displayed in the robes that you wear, the clothing that you wore displayed the level of honor that you had in the community, Paul says we are basically in rags, we're naked, poorly dressed. In a culture that, is, that values honor and public respect, He talks about being buffeted, which is beaten, disrespected, violence against him. In a culture where land and the amount of land that you owned determined your place in the community, the more land meant the higher up you were, Paul says, we're homeless. Paul is saying that he has nothing to commend himself or to be esteemed in the eyes of the Corinthians. And yet, Doesn't matter to him. He says it very clearly in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against me, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Think about what Paul is saying right there. It's actually very radical. He says, I'm not concerned with your view of me. Now, we would go the opposite and say, yeah, you shouldn't be worried what other people think of you. You need to have your own sense of self. Your own self-esteem needs to be built up, right? Don't worry what other people think. Kind of have a confidence inside of yourself. But Paul says, no, not only do I not value your view of me, I don't value my view of me. Only God's view of me is what I care about. And that's incredibly freeing because you cannot live up to other people's standards. But the problem is, you can't even live up to your own standards. But Paul says, I have no need to measure up or prove to others or even myself that I matter because I am not finding my worth, my meaning, my weightiness, my significance in anything I do or have done or how others view me, or even how I view me. To put it in our terms, it would be not needing to be the top student, not needing to have a perfect family, not needing to make partner, not needing to even know that you are loved by others, not needing to win (laughs) to justify your existence. And on top of that, Paul says, you know, like, I'm not acquitted. He knows he's a sinner, but he does not connect his performance in life to his identity or his worth. Why? Because he doesn't look to your view or my view. He doesn't look to the Corinthians or to his own view. He looks to the cross of Christ. In Corinthians 1 uh, Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, I have determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knows that he is loved and accepted by grace through faith in Christ crucified and that alone. Nothing he has done or will do, but Christ and Christ crucified He knows that he did not measure up even though he was very religious, did all the right religious things. He did not measure up and he can't measure up in the future. But Christ did. And that's what he trusts in. Paul's worth and meaning, his glory, is found in Christ who died for him. And so his identity is not puffed up, filled with emptiness. It is filled with Christ. He is filled with Christ and that means others aren't a threat to his hope or his joy. He's not gonna use others to build himself up. He can actually love people. He's free to love people because he finds his love in Christ alone. What would it look like to live cross-centered lives? Let's take uh, an area that's, that we all know about, especially in the D.C. area, politics. I'm guessing that we live in a more fractured, polarized, and brutal political society than we have in a while. Over the past 30 years, all the studies have shown that we've gotten more divided, more polarized, and more vicious in our politics. And I think underneath it, amongst many things, is a glory problem. problem. People look to their party or a particular political issue to give them meaning or hope, to save them and this culture. And the result is, if it becomes an ultimate thing, if your party becomes an ultimate thing, a political issue becomes an ultimate thing, you can't just disagree with somebody who's on the other side. You have to see them as evil and a threat to your existence. And they must be eliminated. But if Christ is the center of our lives, if the cross of Christ is the center of our lives, our source of hope and salvation, then you can actually be involved in politics. You can lobby, you can run, you can work for somebody on Capitol Hill, you can work for a particular political issue because it's important to you. It matters to you and and maybe your view of faith has uh, uh, moved you in that direction but you realize in the end it's not ultimate. When it's not ultimate, it is much easier to cultivate relationships with those who disagree with you. You could even be friends, cultivate relationships across whatever aisle you sit on if Christ is the center. Closer to home here in Vienna, one of the reasons people move to Vienna is because they care about their kids, which is a good thing. To care about your kids is a good thing. I I agree with that. I think I'm, I'm for that. But I wonder in a place like Vienna, even with Christians, if we are more concerned with our kids' success or popularity, or the ease of their life than we are with them being formed into the image of Christ. Do we want them to know Christ, or just be known? Do we want them to become more like Jesus, who was crucified, or do we just want their ease and success in life? You know what this is like. If your kids are happy, if kids are number one, in, if your kids are number one in your life, if your kid's happiness is threatened, you become vicious, because every other person is competition or a threat to your kid, whether it's their teacher or former friends or other parents. Kids make terrible gods and far worse saviors. And to the extent that they are ultimate and where we find our glory, we will end up ruining our relationship with them and probably with all the other people around us. God is calling us to cultivate Christ-centered lives so that we can have Christ-centered community and cross-centered community here. Paul is basically saying in, in, in chapter three and four, the reason for your relational breakdown is you don't actually believe the gospel. Yeah, you heard about Jesus, you put your faith in him, and and if you die, you're probably going to heaven, but you don't actually believe it. You have not applied the gospel to your life. You've not applied the gospel to what's important to you. You've not applied the gospel to your relationships. You're giving it lip service, but valuing something else more than Christ crucified for you. But if the cross of Christ is central to us, where we find our hope, our identity, our meaning, Then you can have stuff, you can succeed, you can be socially in and popular, or not. And it doesn't matter. If your party loses, or your kid struggles, or you don't get credit where you think you deserve credit, or your friends actually forget you, or you miss out on something, it will stink. It will stink. Look, it's bad. Like, you don't want your kids to struggle. You 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 don't want to lose your job. But if cross if the cross of Christ is central to you, it will stink, it will be bad, it will be terrible, you'll feel bad for your kids, you'll feel bad if you lose your job, but it will not crush or destroy you. Because it is not where your meaning or your hope are found. Your hope is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and everything you need has been given to you, and you know it. Which means other people are not a threat nor do you have to use others to advance your cause. You're not comparing constantly. Other people are not competition. And when you get to that place, there's freedom. There's freedom in not comparing and competing. There's freedom in not seeing others as a threat or a tool. You can have peace internally, and you can even love them. To the extent that the cross of Christ is the center of our lives, the source of our identity and worth. We, now and in the future, we, over the next 10 years, will be able to cultivate deep and wide and more diverse, grace-filled, humble and loving community. The sort of community and relationships that the world and, and we desperately need. Let's pray. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace to take to heart the dangers we are in through our many divisions. Deliver us, your church, from all enmity and prejudice and everything that hinders us from godly union with one another. As there is one body and one spirit, one hope, of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So make us all to be of one heart and of one mind, united and holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and love, that with one voice we may give you praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen.